0: Go to the ant, O sluggard. Consider her ways and be wise. Without having any chief, officer, or ruler, she prepares her bread in summer and gathers her food in harvest. How long will you lie there, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. Of course this is from Proverbs chapter 6 where Solomon warns his son about the temptation to laziness. The temptation to put off work, to procrastinate. And that procrastination turns into a deep cycle of laziness. And Solomon turns to his son and it in a vivid illustration, it says, look at this little ant and look how hard it's working. It doesn't have anyone telling it what to do. It just naturally does what it was created to do. You, O oh son, were created to work. Created to work. But as we know, work is hard. It's arduous. It's painful. And it's all because of the fall. In Genesis chapter 3, Moses tells us, That God created us to work, but in chapter 3, our work began to spoil. Because of the fall, work became difficult. He writes this, Cursed is the ground because of you, man. In pain you shall eat of it all the day of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread we've never worked a day in our life where it's not been hard, where it's not been difficult. We know that as we get older, work becomes all the more difficult. Simple tasks like just getting our clothes on becomes a a mountain which we may not be able to overcome. Work is hard. But the truth is, the scriptures teach us that God created us to work. To give glory to him through our labors and Through the gospel of Jesus Christ, there is a new found purpose in our earthly labors. Our labors are transformed. While they don't get any easier as Christians, they do gain a new focus. Namely, learning to serve Christ as we serve others. Our, eternal, our earthly labors rather gain a new focus, an eternal gaze, where our earthly work matters for our eternal home. As we'll see in a moment, there's a reward going to be given for the way we work today. As we've seen throughout this letter in Ephesians, Paul has this forward gaze into the eschaton, into eternity, where he seeks to convince us Christians that what we do today matters for tomorrow. That how we live, the way we love, the way we serve, the way we parent, the way we love our spouses, the way we do our labors here on earth matters in eternity. And so we've seen, for example, beginning in chapter 4 and verse 1, where Paul exhorted us to walk worthy of the calling to which we've been called. In chapters 1 through 3, Paul outlines and unfolds before us this eternal plan where God graciously calls sinners He planned that before he ever spoke one molecule into existence. In eternity past, trillions of years ago, God purposed to save you. But not merely save you, but unite you with every tribe, tongue, and nation. And this union of every tribe, tongue, and nation, this gathering that we call the church, he puts on display so that all the rulers and principalities and powers in the cosmos... Stand in awe every Lord's day as the church gathers. In other words, the angels in heaven are not occupied with anything else but seeing what God is at work doing through the church. We've seen that the church is not to be relegated to some uh, back corner of the Christian life, but it is to be front and center. The unity of the local church is where God puts on display his glory. As sinners who hate one another. Who revile one another. Where sinners, former racists, come in and, and are united. Uh, where rich who used to extort the poor come and sit side by side. Where the poor gather with the rich and despise those in authority. Lay those oppositions aside and gather and sing praises. And repent of their sins and trust in Christ. We've learned that we've not only been radically transformed But that our lives, our relationships have been changed. Not only has our relationship with God been transformed, not only have we been reconciled with God, but we've been reconciled with man. Therefore, our daily relationships with one another have been shaped and changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is what Paul made explicit in chapter five in verse 21 when he wrote, submit to one another out of reverence for the Lord. Submitting to one another is radical. And we saw that this is a countercultural idea submitting to those in authority over us. And, and we saw over the last few weeks that through ordered relationships, Christians would reflect this new reconciled state, that as Christians, we willingly submit ourselves to God's ordered plan for our lives that husbands and wives serving one another and wives submitting to their husbands and husbands loving their wives and parents parenting their children rather than children parenting their their parents and children were to obey their parents and parents particularly fathers were to love their parents or their children rather sacrificially they were to to teach them and through these households we've seen where the gospel meets the road right the rubber meets the road in other words the gospel of jesus christ is practical for everyday life the gospel in our marriages the gospel in our parenting and we'll see today God, the gospel shows up at work what we do on sunday isn't meant just for sunday it's meant for every day of our lives As Christians, we need to dispel these two categories of sacred and secular. The truth is, there is no category as a Christian of secular. All things, according to the scriptures, is sacred. Whether you're working as a bank teller or cleaning a toilet, it's a sacred job. All that we do, whether we're a stay-at-home parent caring for our children Or running a Fortune 500 company. We are doing sacred work. All that work is to give glory to God. And what Paul does now is. Makes his way if you will around the dinner table. He's talked to the parents. He's addressed the children. And now he turns to the slaves. And to the masters. We've noted throughout. That by addressing these certain individuals. Namely, those who would have not been mentioned in this culture, in a Greco-Roman culture. Namely, wives, children as we'll see today, slaves. The very fact that Paul mentions these individuals we have noted throughout means that there was a place for them in the congregation. There was a place for women in the congregation that normally would not have been in a gathering in a Greco-Roman context. Women were elevated to A higher position. Paul is subtly undermining the culture of the day by addressing them. Children, for example. There's there's really little examples of a secular writer writing to parents and children. No, he's always just to the parent, particularly the father. But here Paul addresses children. And then today we'll see Paul addresses slaves, servants, servants. All here is subtly undermining the culture of the day. The second point that I've noticed too, not only elevating their position, but also here, notice here, their very presence in the gathering must mean that they're Christians. By implication of addressing them, he understood them to be Christians. And therefore, of equal value and worth with those in authority over them. In other words, those who want to question, well, why doesn't the Bible explicitly condemn slavery? It does. Why doesn't Paul call out slavery in this particular passage? Well, friend, if you really just pay attention to what he's doing and what he says, he levels the ground by addressing these slaves in front of their masters. There was plenty of households that, could, that these masters where, where masters were told, but to address a slave, this was profound. This was radical. Paul is legitimizing these slaves by addressing them as persons, as people who have souls. Well, let's turn now and see what Paul has to say to them. I invite you to turn to Ephesians chapter 6 if you're not already. We're going to be looking at verses 5 through 9. Next week, beginning... Probably everyone's favorite passage in Ephesians, the armor of God. No, we will not have little, little puppets of people dressing in the armors of God. But, nonetheless, be reading here in verse five. Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ. Not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but As bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to men. Knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he's a bondservant or is free. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening. Knowing that he who is both their masters and yours Is in heaven and there is no partiality with him. What's Paul's point? Summarize it in this way In our earthly labors, we must remember that we ultimately serve Christ as Lord. He is the true master whom we serve. Whether we are a boss, an employer, or an employee, a worker. We serve the Lord ultimately. Now before we get into the text, I want to explain something to make clear. You'll notice in your text, and if you had a pew Bible in front of you, might have, or, or another translation, you might have seen that word bondservant translated as a slave, most likely not translated as a servant. The ESV translators, when they translated this text, were trying to flesh out what the meaning of the word was without you as the reader bringing to the table your own uh, presuppositions that that word communicates. Because we're, this is written in the English language and written to people mostly living in America, and many of us having taken a history class or having felt the pain and sorrow Of chattel slavery here in America. You and I all come to the Bible. With subtle presuppositions about slavery. And so when we hear that word. Our mind is immediately filled with. The the sort of slavery that took place here in America. And while we condemn that as sin. What we need to understand is that is not the same economic system that Paul is referring to here in this particular text. Slavery in America was motivated by race. It was racially motivated. Alright. Secondly, r- slavery in America was seen that the slave was not a human being. Okay. It was that they were animals to be traded. No, no higher of status than the cows and the sheep. Very different than a Greco-Roman slave. In fact, one could be a slave in Greco-Roman time, in in a Roman colony, and be a CEO of a company. Very different. Many scholars believe that about a third of the entire population in the Greco-Roman empire was a slave. Secondly, slaves could buy their freedom. Very different than our own system. I wanted to quote you just a rather lengthy quote here, just so you kind of wash your mind of some of that presupposition about this word so that we can move forward to applying it sort of to our 21st century context. All right. Dr. Thielman writes this, the Roman institution of being a bond servant or slave was different from the institution of slavery in North America during the 17th through the 19th centuries. Slaves, bondservants, servants, generally in the, this time period, in the first century, were permitted to work for pay and to save enough to buy their freedom. An example of that is in Matthew twenty-five, fifteen. Jesus tells an illustration, a parable, about a slave or a servant who is entrusted with an immense amount of money and then could buy their freedom. The New Testament assumes that trafficking in human beings is a sin. 1 Timothy 1.10, Paul writes to Timothy and says that enslavers will not inherit the kingdom of God. And Paul urges Christian bondservants who can gain their freedom to do so. He does that in 1 Corinthians 7. The released bondservant was officially designated a freed man and frequently continued to work for his former master. Right? You understand that, right? So a freed guy... Coming back to work for him. Clearly a very different situation than what we saw here in America. Many inscriptions from freedmen indicated the tendency to adopt the family name of their former master and to continue to honor them after being free. Now I say all that just to make clear what Paul is exhorting and why I'm about to make a big historical leap for us is I'm going to take this text and I'm going to say, okay, What this is akin to, not exactly like, is some of the relationships you and I are in today. Namely, we work for an employer. And you sign a contract with that employer that you're going to do certain things and you're going to fulfill your contract. And if you're in void of that contract, they will fire you. We see also that sometimes employers will use those contracts to abuse their employees. This is why we see labor unions and other organizations that come and try to defend those who work as employees. We know the historical realities of what Paul is speaking to. And so this morning, what I want us to do is to think about in our current context how these sort of points that Paul is making apply to our lives. First, workers obey your employers. Workers obey your employers And then secondly, we'll consider employers treat your workers right. First, if you're an employer, we're going to, or rather, secondly, we're going to deal with employers. First, if you're an employee, if you work for somebody, wherever you work, right? Whether you work for big government or whether you work for mom and pop shop, wherever you are, if you are a worker this morning, this text is addressing how you go about that work. This morning, if you're a manager, a boss, someone who has people who work under you. Perhaps you're a a small business owner or you run a a nonprofit. Perhaps this morning you have those who you're responsible for, who serve you. How are you treating them? Do you treat them right? Do you treat them fairly? Do you treat them justly? Well, these are the two points we want to consider this morning. First, you'll see here, Paul exhorts these bondservants to, Verse 5, obey your earthly masters. This is the same word we've seen throughout. First to wives, submit to your husbands. And then to, to children, obey your parents. The same idea, submission, right? Submit to those who are in authority over you. And Paul here outlines five characteristics of a godly worker I want us to look at this morning. Five characteristics of a godly worker. In our earthly labors, how are we to labor? What manner are we to labor in? Well, he lists five of them. Look first, with fear and trembling. In other words, we're to work respectfully. We're to work respectfully. Now, now you look at that fear and trembling. We've we saw that uh, last week. This isn't like cowardice, afraid, like I'm scared. You know, I'm gonna get fired. that, That kind of fear, but rather it is a reverential fear. It's a deference. It's a it's an honoring of those in authority over us. We're respectful. For example, in Colossians 3:22, Paul writes, "Bondservants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters. Not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord." In a similar way, uh, there's a respect for the Lord in the way we serve. And Paul here is saying, "Listen, when you go about your work, you need to do that respectfully." Friend, I wonder this morning, do you respect those you work for? It is so easy for us to grow resentful rather than respectful. We might resent the way our bosses handle situations or the way they speak to us or the way perhaps they praise our work or maybe they don't even give us any recognition for our work. And maybe we're tempted to just, just constantly talk back to them. constantly take what they say and just you know, not respect them in their position. Brothers and sisters, as Christians, we want to be respectful to those in authority over us. Whether that's in the home, in our expectations of children, being respectful to parents, or whether that be in the workplace, we want to model well respect. We've all seen this, right? A coworker blowing up on the boss and screaming and shouting and acting like a crazy person. No respect whatsoever. Brothers and sisters, you understand when we behave that way, we're actually hurting our testimony before a watching world. One of the ways that we demonstrate our submission to Christ is through respect. Paul goes on. He doesn't say just respect, but notice what he says. He kind of piles these on, right? He says, with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart. A sincere heart. A sincere heart is one Whose personal integrity is expressed in word and action. Sincere. Your words and actions match what you say. Sincerity means when you say you're going to do something, you do it. Sincerity means that when you do the job, you don't pass it off as someone else's. Sincerity. Brother or sister, do you struggle with a lack of sincerity in your work? And you know where lack of sincerity shows up? In laziness. Do you struggle with laziness? It's so interesting as you look through the Proverbs, how often Solomon is dealing with this issue of laziness in the life of his son and those who are reading. Consider... Proverbs 1924: "The sluggard buries his hand in the dish and will not even bring it back to his mouth." <laughs> he's so lazy he can't even eat. <laughs> That's, that is the pinnacle of laziness, right? right?? If you're so lazy, you can't eat, you are lazy, right? That's what Solomon is saying. He's like, "Look at this guy. He's so lazy, he's got his face down in his Cheerios. Is uh, he so lazy? And how are you tempted to laziness that is out of an insincere heart? You see, the source of it is the heart. It's, it's a heart problem, brothers and sisters. And the only remedy is what we heard in Ezekiel 36 is I need a new heart. You see, that's why as Christians, part of the, the sanctifying work of the spirit is transforming us even in our earthly labors. Friend, have you seen a change in your earthly labors since you become a Christian? Have you seen a greater urgency, a greater sincerity in your earthly work? As Christians, we should. We should expect that. That is a sanctifying work of the Spirit. Paul goes on, verse 6. He writes. Not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ. In other words, we're to work humbly, not pride with, filled with pride. Not as, as by way of eye service. Paul makes up two Greek words here. Eye service, literally, an eye slave. He just takes the word eye and the word slave and he combines it together. An eye servant, an eye slave. In other words, one who only works when others can see. You know that one, right? The one who orders their desks together when the boss comes in. The one who starts typing on the computer and turns off Facebook as soon as the boss comes down the hallway. Eye service. People pleaser. See, he sort of defines what he means by an eye servant is a people pleaser. A man pleaser. Literally is what Paul says there. A man, a man slave, an eye slave. One who is a slave to recognition rather than a slave, as you'll see, to Christ. Friend, are you a slave to what others see? I fondly remember to this very day where I was an eye slave. My very first job, my very first, I don't know, it may have been my first day. I would assume it probably was. I worked as a uh, as a high schooler at a at a custard stand ice cream you know make ice cream and you you know scoop it up and it was all homemade stuff it was all made fresh right there and my first job was washing dishes and, uh, and I was the dishwasher having to wash. And, you know, I wanted to impress the boss and, and really show that I was a hard worker. And so, you know, we were dealing with hot fudge and caramel. You get it all over the place. You mean you walk out of there, just like, it oozes out of your skin, you know. And, uh, and I was like, you know, I was wiping it on my apron. We wore these, like, white aprons. And, you know, I was covered. I was just dirty. I made mean, it look like I had been working hard. And I was impressed with myself. And my boss the owner of the comp- the owner of the little little place, came around the corner and he defied. I mean, just it, it, harshly, go change your apron. You look disgusting. And I, you know, I, I want all of my employees to be clean. And uh, you know, so so see see what I was trying to do to impress him, I was actually doing the exact opposite. And he was like discouraged by me, like this guy's an idiot. I don't want him anymore. And as I would work there over like an eight-year period of time, this guy, I think, had an OCD problem. Everything had to be spotless and white and clean all the time, right? And so what I thought I was doing, right? But but see, my motive was eye-servant. I was just trying to please men. Rather than doing my work and not getting the recognition, I was trying to work hard and also get that pat on the back. Brother, do you serve better when someone is watching? than when no one sees what you do? Do you do your best work when you know the company is going to honor you for that hard work you've done? Why is it that you care more about what men and women have to say about you than what the Lord has to say about you? And frankly, let's be honest. We all know how to please men and do poor work. Let me say that again. We all know how to do work in such a way that will please men, but we know it's still not our best. You see, if we aim at pleasing men, we'll never do our best. We'll never work hard. Because we know at what level the expectation is, and we'll just work to that level. We'll never seek to excel that level. But as Christians, what God has called us to be is humble servants working with our heads down hard, aiming to please the one who sees all and knows all, the Lord Jesus Christ. And as we'll see in a moment, we are to labor humbly, aiming for our eternal reward and not the, the tawdry reward of the praise of men. Well, the fourth characteristic we see here is that we are to work willingly. We're to work willingly. Notice what Paul writes at the end of verse 6 doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not men. Doing the will of God from the heart with good will. We are to work willingly, not grudgingly. Friend, do you work out of duty or out of joy? Is your earthly labor just to sort of like, hey, I'm just punching the, the clock? Or do you do it willingly? Expectantly? We need to get this back in its historical context for a moment, don't we? Regardless of how we paint this picture in the first century, they were still slaves. They were still servants. They were still bonded and as we'll see, some of them were in deplorable situations. Perhaps they had been threatened by their masters. Perhaps they had been treated poorly. While the system wasn't the same as ours here in America, it still was a system bent against those who were in servient roles. Brethren and sister, the Lord knows how bad work is. Some of us have worked or are working in deplorable situations underpaid, perhaps working in an office that's understaffed, you yourself having to care the burden of that, you having to work later without extra pay. You see, in those circumstances, it's so easy for us to quit, to not work willingly, to grow in bitterness, and as we talked about earlier, resentment. What's your attitude to the work you do? Do you work willingly? Or do you allow the resentment of, of an abusive boss or lack of pay or just mean people who tell you what to do all day to keep you from working hard? About 15 years ago, I was working as a plumber in the trades it was right around the time of the recession and many of the trades suffered like many other industries. There was days that we wouldn't work. We straight by as a family. And the other guys I worked with were just cut making ends meet. It was hard. It was difficult. And one rainy day, me and my other guys were were coming back we had got back to the to the shop early and uh, because there was no work to be done we did our work we worked four hours and we were going home and on this sort of rainy cold day i still remember it today because it was a moment a turning point in my own heart for this particular employer when he pulls up in his brand new fully loaded truck in his big rv we'd been starving For weeks, months. And here comes this business owner flashing all of his new stuff. Friend, it was hard not to grow in resentment and bitterness, right? In the midst of those situations that you and I have all experienced, at some level, we've been in positions where, where the boss is, you know, doing well and we're suffering. Brothers and sisters, as Christians, we want to continue to work willingly. To fight against this. And how do we fight against resentment? Well let's look finally at this last characteristic of a godly worker. We're to work purposefully. Throughout this section notice what he does in repetition. Verse 5. The end of verse 5. Work as you would to Christ. Verse 6. As bondservants of Christ. Then verse 7. As to the Lord and not to man. Our work, our labor, should have an aim in all that we do, Paul says. We should have a purpose in every screw we turn, every letter we type, every job we're assigned. We need to have a perspective in all that we do. That that work is done to Jesus as if he's our boss and not the one sitting across the table from us. Your boss may be terrible. He may be manipulative. He may be a wretched person. But trust this. Paul says you serve the Lord Christ. In all of our earthly labors, in everything we do, regardless of where we're at, ultimately as Christians, our boss, his name is King Jesus. Now I got a question for you. If Jesus was your boss, would that change the way you approached your work? Would you arrive to work a little earlier? Would you come with a greater urgency and respect? Would you come wanting to work your hardest that day? The truth is we would, right? Brother, sister, that's no, those are not hypothetical questions. According to the Apostle Paul, inspired by the Spirit of God, that's a reality. You work for Jesus. Period, he says. Period. Regardless, if you work for the greatest boss or manager in the world, the greatest company in the world, or you work for the worst, ultimately, you serve King Jesus. And so let us then work hard with joy. As to the greatest boss we'll ever have. To the one who knows how much we sacrifice. How much we work hard. Now, with all this said, I want to give a word to the workaholic. Friend, where are you finding your identity in your work? Rather than in Christ. To work for the Lord means that your identity is in who you work for, not in what you work. And the reason why you're tempted to be a workaholic and you spend all those long hours and you sacrifice your family on the altar of work is because your idol is the please and the praise of men rather than the praise of the Lord. Jesus didn't ask you to sacrifice your wife and children. He's not that kind of boss. If you really work for Jesus. If he's really the one in charge. I doubt that he's wanting you to disobey the verses that we've already considered in the weeks past. Friend, don't give yourself to your work in a way that turns it into an idol. But give your work as an act of worship. Brothers and sisters, do you see that everything you do then is an act of worship? It's an act of dominion. And because you're created in the image of God, when you work well, you are reflecting God's good character in the world around you. You are helping God in his dominion of this earth when you labor and work well. Well, quickly, I want to show you two motivations for godly workers before we go to beat up on our bosses. First here, Paul offers us two motivations as workers. As is his custom, he wants to ground this in gospel motivation. This is not a be a better you speech from the Apostle Paul. This is, I want you to know some theological truth. And it's within this theological framework that you will work harder. Harder. So again, I want to express, this is not you pulling up your spiritual bootstraps and being a better man or a better woman, a better and harder worker. It's you knowing these two truths. And this is what will get you up early on Monday morning to work hard. Look at them. Verse 8, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord. In other words, know you will be rewarded by the Lord for your good work. So you didn't get that bonus. You're like Chevy Chase, right? (laughs) Christmas vacation, right? You can't build the pool, all right? Sorry. You didn't get that big bonus. Does that mean that you quit? The boss didn't recognize the work. Someone else stole your work and passed it off as your own. Perhaps it's just where you're working. It's the job you're doing. I'll confess here as a, clearly a failure in work. I've done that three, this is my third time in this sermon, confessing my failures. But, but I remember the resentment of, I have a master's degree and I'm fixing toilets. More educated than anyone that I worked with. And I allowed the bitterness and the doubt of God's sovereignty to grow in my heart so much that I didn't work for an eternal reward. I worked only for an earthly one. Well, let that serve as example for you to flee whatever expectations you have and to serve Christ wherever you are. Start every day with this mindset. Will what I do today matter for that day? Let that be your resounding mindset. Let it be whatever your job is. And we have a wide spectrum of workers here today. Work for that eternal reward. He he sees what you're doing. Work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. Second motivation here. Know your reward is not based on social status. I want you to notice what he does here and why I mean he's undermining the whole system of slavery in this one verse. Knowing that anyone, and he means anyone, slave or free, anyone will receive back from the Lord whether he is a bondservant or free. Your reward is not based on what job you're doing. As we'll see in a moment, just because you're a CEO doesn't mean you get preferential treatment by, by Jesus. And it doesn't matter, friend. It doesn't matter what you're doing. It may seem insignificant in the eyes of your family, your friends, and this world. But friends, trust this. You will be rewarded the same as the man who serves hard or works in some important role here in this world. As Paul writes, to the church in Colossae here, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave free, but Christ is all in, in all. Let me just comfort you with that truth that you will be rewarded. Let me just encourage you to have your eye on eternity in your earthly labors. Christians, our labors here on earth. Matter for eternity. Well, let's turn briefly to employers. Paul just has one verse to say to them, doesn't he? Employers, treat your workers right. Employers, treat your workers right. Look at what Paul writes there in verse 9. Masters, do the same to them. Stop your threatening, knowing that he, who is both their master and yours, is in heaven, and there's no partiality with him. Paul says there's two characteristics of a godly employer. If you're an employer today, two characteristics. Two characteristics. He has here. Number one, lead in a similar way. Lead in a similar way. Do to them the same. Do, the, do to them the same? What do you mean? In other words, the same characteristics that you expect of your employers, employees, rather, you should model as an employer. What are we talking about here? Well, none other than servant leadership, right? You're, you're to be a servant leader. You're to model before your workers the kind of characteristics that you want to see in them. I'll turn this on pastors for a minute. Pastors so often whine about their churches. And and, and honestly, if if they've been a pastor there long, they're just reflecting back to you your own characteristics. They're lazy because you're lazy. You're whiny because... Or they're whining because you're whining. You know I mean? It just, you really, truly, at the end of the day, that's what happens. Look, that is what happens. How God's created us. Followers look like their are leaders. Employers and employees, same thing. So friend, if you're, those under you in your job aren't working well, perhaps it's because you're not modeling well for them. Paul says, do the same to them. Be a model of hard work. Serve them well. Be a boss that leads. Secondly, here we see a second characteristic is that we're we're to lead fairly. Verse 9, stop your threatening, he says. A threat here, the the meaning of this word is to manipulate. To extort. To give some sort of fear of punishment, even death. In, In this cultural context, all of those things would have been included. Masters would have threatened them, perhaps even threatening death, threatening a father to be moved away, traded away to another family and and, and ripped apart. Masters would have done these kind of things in, in, in this first century. And so in our own lives as managers, bosses, owners, how are we doing the same? Perhaps we're holding over a promotion over someone's head or or some commendation because we want them to do something for us how do you treat your workers do you treat them fairly or rather unfairly with unfair penalties we saw this last week with the way fathers father their children and the expectations they have on them are your expectations for your workers too high Do you threaten them with punitive damages or even firing just because they make a few mistakes? Or do you seek to train them where they fail, help them where they're weak, and encourage them? Fear rarely motivates people. Rarely motivates them to do their best work. And so let us model Christ's likeness and treat them fairly. Now Paul offers Godly employers, two motivations. Notice with me the the motivations he gives to them. Same phrase, knowing. Again, theological. This is not bosses be better, but it's rather bosses know some truth. You see, truth transforms. And if they would just know this truth, it should inform then how they lead. And so he offers them two motivations. First, lead on level ground lead on level ground. Paul has been using a play on words that doesn't come out English very well uh, because we wouldn't naturally translate the word master as Lord. But it's the same Greek word, underlining word, as the Lord Jesus, right? Kurios, same, same word. And so when he says lords or masters, right, there's a play on words that he's doing here. And in verse 9 he expresses that by emphasizing this point, hey you lords, you have a lord in heaven. This is a stark phrase that he gives them, isn't it? It's staggering. He says, "Hey bosses, I, wanna, I want you to remember something. There's a big boss in heaven. And his name's Jesus." Friends, this is a bone-chilling word to these lords who had been lording it over those under them. You are not the ultimate authority over your workers, but you yourself, a worker who answers to the highest boss. He is the one whom Paul has described in chapter one in verse 21, who is far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Friends, your desk might say boss. It might say owner whatever, on, on, your, on your little name tag. But at the end of the day, Jesus is the boss. And it, your name, Paul says here, is meaningless. And so as Christians who are serving in leadership in, in your workplace, lead with this truth in mind. That you have a boss in heaven who sees every. Time, you treat your worker poorly. He sees everything you're doing. He knows your heart towards them. You answer to Jesus and you will answer to Jesus, he says. He is in heaven and you will one day stand before him. Let this then be our motivation to lead well. But he concludes with one final motivation. Look there at the end of verse 9. And there is no partiality with him The second second motivation here to employers is lead with eternity on your mind. Lead with eternity on your mind. That Christ judges without favoritism. Just because you have an important job or because you've been privileged with employees does not mean you have a privileged place with Jesus. There is no favoritism with him. There's no trump card to pull out. There's no, hey, you don't understand. You know, I was really important here on earth. She's like, yeah, whatever. You're no big deal here in heaven, let me tell you. That motivates us to lead well. It motivates us because we know one day we're going to answer to Jesus for the ways we've used our authority. Lead with eternity on your mind. Let that be on your mind when you speak to your employees, when you encourage them, when you model before them, when you use your authority, this Godlike authority that He's given you. Use that with this in mind. In our earthly labors, we must remember as Christians that we ultimately serve Christ in all that we do. Whether we are bosses or whether we are workers, we are to serve in, with that in mind. Richard Koken, in his commentary on this text, summarizes this passage in this way. In this wonderfully practical passage, masters, slaves, fathers, and children are all encouraged to live and work together as servants of Christ, to demonstrate in the heavenly realms the triumphant wisdom of God in his eternal mission of gathering us under the rule of Christ. For the triumphant victory of the cross over evil powers is not only demonstrated in church on Sundays, it is powerfully displayed when Christians from every background submit to the rule of Christ in our homes, our workplaces, from Monday to Saturday as well. And although our homes and workplaces can be painful and difficult because of sin, our churches can provide us with an encouraging foretaste of the happy family life and satisfying creative workplaces that Christians will enjoy in the coming kingdom of God. In other words, all that we do today matters for that day. Let's pray. Father, we pray today that you would convict us, encourage us, and empower us to walk in obedience in your word for your glory in Christ's name. Amen.